Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Warren Eugene Milter, Jr., for a discussion about his research and new book, North Carolina's Free People of Color from 1715 to 1885. Warren Milter, Jr. is an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So let me just give a warm welcome to Warren Eugene Milter, Jr. to the show. Welcome, Warren. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be speaking with you today. Well, this is one of those topics that I think you've been floating around Facebook for at least a month. So you have a large number of people who are very interested in learning about North Carolina's free people of color. So tell us, why did you decide to focus your research on this particular topic? Okay, well, uh, my research interests came out of my own connection to free people of color in North Carolina and also Virginia, so I'm a descendant of free people of color. And probably a little over 20 years ago, I started doing family history research, and eventually that family history research took me into the archives, um, including the uh, state archives in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I started there looking for specifically family information and ended up finding a whole lot more. Uh, For people who do genealogical research, they know that once you find one thing, it often leads to something else. And so I kept digging into a variety of different collections and um, figured out I had enough material to actually do a serious project. So the first project that I did on free people of color in North Carolina was an honors thesis uh, when I was an undergraduate at North Carolina State University. Um, And that project just kind of stuck with me as I uh, became a graduate student in my master's program and then a Ph.D. student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And there I ended up writing a Ph.D. dissertation about free people of color in North Carolina. And this book, uh, that North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715 to 1885, uh, comes out of that dissertation project. So when you speak of North Carolina free people of color, tell us exactly who are you talking about? 
how are these free people of color categorized? Okay, so free people of color is a broad, I, I would describe it as a catch-all category that um, included a variety of different people of various mixtures of background, um, including people of African descent and people of Native American descent. And these were people who were free before 1865. Often I have people who come to me and talk about free people of color and miss that really important point. Uh, there's, a, there's a difference between freed men, which often refers to people who were free because of the Civil War, and free people of color who were free before the Civil War. And so um, a free person of color could be a person of African descent and or Native American descent, or there are actually cases uh, where people of Native American descent are categorized as free people of color. Um, there's usually, though, a line between those Native people who were classified generally as Indians and those who ended up being classified as free people of color. Those who were classified as Indians tended to be parts of nations that, for lack of words, colonial society um, and later um, the United States society, the white people who ran that society recognized as Indians. So say the Cherokees in Western North Carolina uh, generally were not referred to as free people of color, whereas uh, some smaller groups that by the end of the colonial period were down to maybe a, a handful of people, such as the uh, Chowan Indians in eastern North Carolina, they were categorized as free people of color, and the laws that dealt with free people of color often applied to them. So you mentioned um, one of your reasons for for getting involved in this research was because your own family, uh, you descend from free people of color, and that you started off at the North Carolina Archives. But tell us a little bit more about some of the sources you used for your research. Okay. Um, so I went to several different archives, first of all, to do research for this book, uh, I would say the key archives are the North Carolina State Archives in Raleigh, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and the Southern Historical Collection at UNC Chapel Hill in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, in the North Carolina State Archives, many of the county records for the various counties in North Carolina are located there, uh, county court records, uh, wills, deeds, uh, all of those materials can be found in their archives, either on microfilm or as loose papers or in large volumes. And so some of these large volumes, say court minutes, would contain a variety of daily happenings in a community or monthly happenings, maybe quarterly happenings. In a community, uh, you would see court cases. You would see the apprenticeships of not just free people of color but white people as well. So this is when people are um, – as children are bound out as apprentices to learn a variety of different trades, those materials tend to show up in the um, court minutes. Uh, there are also a few, I would say, more obscure sources that I also found in the state archives, including uh, voter records. So there are records from the mid to early 1800s that actually give there are lists of people who voted, and I was able to locate some free people of color on those lists. In the National Archives, I primarily used uh, pension records for my research. So this was Revolutionary War pension records, 
and Civil War pension records. These were excellent sources for getting firsthand testimonies from free people of color about their experiences, both in the war, but also in their daily lives. And that's something that I've often struggled to locate is getting those, uh, those primary testimonies because we don't have as many um, diaries and letter collections in archives from free people of color. And so we have to look in alternative places to find their voices. And then the Southern Historical Collection in UNC Chapel Hill used a variety of diaries. Uh, there were books that contained um, store, ledger, store information. These would be store ledgers. These store ledgers would in, in include information about who purchased what item on what day, how did they purchase it. Some people would have bartered for goods. Some people would have purchased with cash. And often in these ledgers, uh, individuals are listed as free people of color explicitly. Sometimes they're not, and you need to have done some additional research in order to figure that out. So you really have to get a grasp when doing this research on free people of color, who are the free people of color in the community, what families are, the, are free people of color in that community. And when you understand that, then you're able to go and take some of these more obscure records, such as a store ledger or voter registration, and really um, get a better understanding of Southern society and North Carolina society through those sources. Right. And, and it's very interesting to hear you mention the Civil War pension and Revolutionary War pension records and the fact that you could, I mean, this was primary sources, you could actually almost hear the voices as they described what they were going through. So let's just talk about North Carolina. Were, were there any counties where you found a, a larger number of free people of color than some of the other counties? And I'm asking you a two-part question because I also want you to just name some of the counties where you found the free people of color. Okay. Um, there were free people of color all over the state, but they tended to be located in the east and in the central part of Piedmont of North Carolina. Some of the counties with larger populations of free people of color would have been Craven County in the east, Halifax County, uh, Wake County, where Raleigh is located, Robinson County, North Carolina, um, at one time Orange County, North Carolina, before that was split into Alamance, and the current day Orange County, uh, Durham County, North Carolina also is carved out of part of Orange. Uh, Pasquotank County, which is in the northeastern part of the state, had a relatively large population of free people of color. Uh, Hertford County, North Carolina, which is on the border with Virginia in the eastern part of the state, uh, was also a location with a large number of free people of color. And that's a county where I have ancestry and have done extensive research, probably more so than some of the other counties. But uh, those were a big part of the uh, focus of the book. And many individuals that appear in my book come from those counties because they were the counties with the largest numbers of free people of color. And by the 1860s, some of these counties had um, well over 1,000 free people of color in them. Uh, Halifax, I think, was getting close to around 2,000 free people of color by the 1860s. And uh, many of these counties are actually, uh, as far as population of free people of color is concerned, they are among the 
I would say, top 50 counties in the United States when it comes to uh, population of free people of color. So can you describe for us how did many of these individuals become free, or did they start off free? Well, it, it, it varies. For many families, it's to be honest, it's a mystery how some of these people became free. Um, but it's, what we can document is that some free people of color, especially in the colonial period, tended to be the descendants of free women. So uh, a free woman would be a generally a white woman or a woman of Native American heritage or the, a descendant of a white woman or a woman of Native American heritage. Uh, so that was one way. Another major way to become free is to be manumitted. And so manumission is a process in which an enslaved person, through a legal transaction, can become a free person and be entitled to the rights of a free person. And so manumissions happen through a variety of different avenues, some free people of color became free by self-purchase, so they would work on the side and save up enough money to pay the person who owned them for their freedom. Other people would uh, engage in self-purchase by borrowing money from somebody they knew, using that money to, to purchase themselves, and then pay that money back once they were free. Um, you also have free people of color, or in certain cases also white individuals who buy their family members out of slavery, so they're the ones engaging in the transaction. Uh, another way that a free person could become free is if they're mastered through, uh, variety, for a variety of different reasons. It might be kinship reasons. It might be that this is a uh, enslaved person that they have some kind of uh, relationship with would uh, – Manumit that person without that the manumitted person or enslaved person having to pay directly for their freedom. So that's those are some of the ways that individuals become free. There are also instances where people uh, obtain their freedom through lawsuits, and usually these lawsuits were rooted in cases where a person who was being held as a slave would claim that some ancestor was free. Usually, and this would have to be a uh, ancestor on the mother's line, and then make a, a case that their freedom had been taken away from them and that they were free and they deserved to, uh, to be free. Some people won these cases and some people did not. Um, all, I, what happened often is that, especially in the colonial period, there was not a lot of good documentation about um, apprenticeships when people were being uh, hired out as servants. The, the, there are records, but not every instance is well documented. Their courthouse fires, records get destroyed. And so documentation of people's freedom often is um, goes missing for whatever reason. And so that creates a dilemma for those people who uh, might be servants originally and then end up being treated as slaves later on. So given that, tell us some of the obstacles and challenges you observed free people of color experiencing in North Carolina. 
see, there are, there are a variety of different challenges that free people of color experience in North Carolina, um, especially those free people of color who were poor. You see in the colonial period and even into the 19th century that free people of color who were poor were targeted more often by lawmakers than free people of color who may have been property holders or in some rare cases, uh, slaveholders. And they were targeted by systems such as the apprenticeship system. So the apprenticeship system uh, and the apprenticeship laws allowed local magistrates, local justices of the peace to take children away from their parents and apprentice them out uh, early on without permission. Later on, there are rules put in place that require permission, but to what extent uh, that permission is uh, given and is and that the uh, obtained in a serious way, I think, is debatable from situation to situation. Um, so the apprenticeship system basically allowed children to become the laborer of a neighbor for up to 21 years. Um, by the time we get to the 19th century. And so that takes away a lot of the prime, uh, when people are in their prime and their ability, and it limits their family's abilities to basically profit from their labor. So if you're at home with your mother and you're working on your mother's farm, she can increase her wealth. Whereas if you were working for somebody else, you're increasing the wealth of that other person. Mm-hmm. So that would, that would be one major issue. Um, there were laws against uh, people who were uh, poor and not working. There were opportunities to uh, force them into working, to take away their children. So vagrancy laws that were subject to. Um, by the time we get into the 1830s, there's restrictions on the right to vote. So free people of color, unlike uh, free people of co- free people of color in North Carolina, unlike free people of color in many other southern states, free men of color, to be more specific, uh, had the right to vote until 1835. North Carolina was the last state in the South to take away that right. And so up to 1835, they could vote. After 1835, they were not able to vote. Uh, there were also restrictions on the economic activities of free people of color, and many of these restrictions came about in the mid-1800s. So there were restrictions on being able to sell liquor, um, to sell certain goods without a license, so you have to apply for a license maybe to like sell cakes and cookies and things of that nature, um, whereas if you were a white person, that would not be something you would have been subject to. Uh, free people of color were excluded from the public schools. North Carolina was relatively late in developing public schools, but when they were developed, free people of color were excluded and they could not attend those schools. Um, in a private setting, they could do what they wanted, so they were not prohibited from learning how to read and write and uh, learn math and things of that nature in North Carolina, but they couldn't attend the public schools. So they were free, but there were still some restrictions on what that freedom really meant. So how did the laws, yeah, the laws change? I mean, you mentioned some after 1835 they couldn't vote. Before that time they could vote. So what was the relationship among, let's say, free people of color and the enslaved community? 
as far as in the law? As far um, as the law, as far as their relationship, or what you find some free people of color having enslaved uh, relatives, and were they right. able to buy their enslaved relatives' freedom, or did they interact at all? Okay, yes. Um, so as time goes on, there are, uh, the restrictions on interactions between free people of color and enslaved people Increase So politically, as we go through the 19th century, um, the politics in the South in particular are getting more extreme around the issue of slavery. And part of that extremism is trying to protect, quote unquote, enslaved property through any means necessary. And that includes putting restrictions on free people of color. So one of the restrictions that you see is um, the inability of free people of color and enslaved people to marry on their own. So their marriages were not recognized by the law per se, but in the community they were generally accepted. But as time went on, um, some slave masters wanted to keep free people of color away from the enslaved population. They didn't want free people of color to uh, be a model in a sense, for what it would be like to be a free person. They didn't want their enslaved people to think about freedom. And so they tried mm-hmm. to keep some free people of color away. Uh, the law was amended at one point to allow masters to decide whether their enslaved people could marry free people of color or not. So if you received approval, Basically, as a free person of color, you would not have to go through such a thing if you were to try to marry another free person of color. But if you marry an enslaved person, you now need to ask permission from a slave master in order to engage in that marriage. Um, There are other laws on the books controlling free people of color and their ability to worship freely. Um, So white people are supposed to be present when free people of color and enslaved people are worshiping. Um, there are also uh, other laws trying to control, like, just basic interactions around, like, playing cards. Playing cards with slaves is is not legal. Trading with slaves becomes illegal, so enslaved people's property is being viewed as the property of their masters and not their own property, and therefore they don't have a legal right to sell it to a free person of color. So there are free people of color who are prosecuted for buying um, a variety of different items, whether it's a chicken or an egg or uh, something more substantial from enslaved people. Mm-hmm. So I'd like everybody to know you're listening to Warren Eugene Miltier, Jr. discuss North Carolina's free people of color from 1715 to 1885. If you'd like to ask a question, please call 516-453-9145 and press 1 to speak to the host. So let's talk for a minute about some of the families. Can you highlight any particular family names that people probably clamoring to find out, you know, was my family free? Do you have a list of the free the names of free people of color? 
So there are a lot of free people of color that appear in this book. Um, but some of the, I will see, let me see if I can think about the major names. Uh, probably the most common name amongst free people of color in North Carolina is Chavis. And so there are many Chavises and uh, Chavis varieties. So there are varieties of the way Chavis is spelled. Sometimes it's spelled C-H-A-V-I-S. Uh, sometimes you'll see it as more like a Chavers, so C-H-A-V-E-R-S. Um, I guess if I'm thinking about the, the different county communities, so say Granville County, North Carolina, there was a large population of free people of color there. You see the Basses, the Andersons, uh, the Hawleys, um, the Parkers, uh, Chavises, uh, and several others. Um, thinking about, say, Robinson County, North Carolina, the, the Locklears, the Lowrys. Again, there are Chavises in that community as well. Um, thinking about Craven County, North Carolina, the Stanleys, who were a prominent family in that community, the Green family, Hazel family. Uh, thinking more towards the northeast part of the state, like Pasquotank County, Perquimans County, you see the Bows, the Overtons, um, going a little bit further west into Hertford County, the Weavers, the Nickens, um, Orange County, North Carolina, the Jeffreys, Corns, Whitmores. Um, yeah, and there are several others which um, appear in the book as well. Well, I think that you probably have a large number of people checking off saying, yes, that's my family, that's right, that's my family. So let's talk about... Uh, the families once again, but this time I want to talk about uh, acquiring property and tell us about some of the laws about inheriting property, uh, those that are free people of color. Were there any laws or restrictions that were specifically designed to prevent the inheritance of property or just tell us about that? Okay. I mean, Free people of color in North Carolina largely had a lot of freedom when it came to owning real estate property in particular um, and being able to transfer that property to people that they wanted it to go to. Um, and so you see what, what appears to be a concerted effort by free people of color to associate with families who are of the same status as they are in order to obtain property and maintain property. So many of these families tend to be those who were free during the colonial period. Um, they will marry within a small group of families that had been together since, say, the 1750s and continue to marry into his families over and over again. I mean, some community people are still doing that up to this day. But by marrying within these small groups, they're able to keep family property together, keep that property from being overly divided because as time goes on, you might have a 100-acre tract of land, but if you split that between 10 kids, you've only got 10 acres. And in the 1800s, 10 acres can only do so much for you. Uh, so if you're able to maintain that in some way, 
whether it is selling amongst yourselves, marrying between families that have property. So you may have one family that has 100 acres and the other family has 100 acres. Put that, that together and you've got 200 acres of resources. Mm-hmm. And that provides you with an opportunity not only to feed your family, but potentially to own crops, uh, to, uh, to, to sow crops, excuse me, that you can sell on the market and then use that money to acquire additional pieces of land and grow your um, real estate empire. And some people actually have a relatively uh, sizable amount of land uh, there. It's not unheard of to have three people of color who had 600 acres of land, 1,000 acres of land. There weren't many, but there it's not unheard of. And then I'll just talk about for a minute just uh, religion and that the free people of color – uh, practice their religion separately, or did they interact with the white uh, individuals in the community? Okay, so I mean, you see a little bit of both, but early on, especially, uh, there's a lot of interaction between free people of color, their white neighbors, and also enslaved people um, in the churches. Uh, we're talking about the late 1700s early 1800s, there are ministers who are free people of color who preach before mixed audiences. Uh, By the time we get to the 1830s, those people are being pushed out because of these laws that are trying to control interactions between free people of color and enslaved people. And so by that time period, they're being either pushed underground or being pushed out altogether as being the head of a church. But even after that time, uh, the majority of free people of color who are attending churches in the uh, 1800s are going to participate in mixed congregations. You do see, uh, especially, I would say, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, uh, churches that are run by free people of color starting to pop up. And part of the problem that free people of color are increasingly facing is that they're being allowed to be members of churches, but they're not necessarily allowed to have power within those mixed congregations. So they can't be the deacon. They clearly can't be the the minister. And so by having their own congregations, they can at least have some power over church affairs. When they're founding their churches, however, they do have to have a white minister um, by law. And some of those white ministers will actually end up staying on in some of these churches past the Civil War. And then it's not until the, the post-Civil War period that they end up having ministers of color who are able to formally represent them and speak to them. So, Warren, I mean, and it's very interesting that you would say that, but let's talk about beyond the Civil War, since you go into 1885. So we're now, and we're talking about the period post-Civil War. What did you observe in your research that was different than what you saw prior to uh, 1863? Well, post-Civil War, free people of color are both in a good place and I think also a place of confusion for some of them. So post-Civil War, there are greater opportunities to participate in politics than before. 
Um, there's public education now available to people of color, although that education is segregated. It is now available. Um, and so you see free people of color taking on leadership roles in the public schools and in politics in, partic- in particular. And I would say that their influence and power is probably disproportionate uh, because many of the free people of color were literate and some of them were property holders. It gave them a leg up over many of the enslaved people when it came to uh, being involved in, in politics, being involved in public education. And so those are, the, I would say, the major changes. You also see uh, more independent churches coming about as well in the post-Civil War period for people of color. So now they can have their own ministers, they can have their own deacons, and there's no major issue. So you, you do see people uh, leaving the churches immediately after the war, free people of color leaving the white-dominated churches and, and forming their own congregations, sometimes by themselves and sometimes with uh, members of the formerly enslaved population. Also what okay. you see happening after the war is a um, issue about identity and what terminology to use for themselves after the war because d- before the 1865, free people of color was a distinct legal status, but after the war, that status uh, falls apart, and so free people of color are often lumped together with the ex-slave population, and uh, – some free people of color are fine with that, and there are others who are very much attached to the, the formal hierarchy, at least as far as uh, being considered a separate people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a caller that's calling in, uh, area code 503. Do you have a question or a comment? You're live. Uh, yes, uh, hello, uh, Rick Vigland in Oregon, and uh, thank you, first of all, Warren, for the book. And I have a question regarding uh, kinship networks, which I found very interesting in Chapter 5 of your book. And uh, a family that I'm historian for uh, down in the Randolph County area has at least six or eight marriages to a uh, family in clear down in Duplin County. And I'm curious how such a long-distance kinship network uh, comes about. Well, I'm not familiar with that specific example, but you do see instances of long-distance kinship networks being formed uh, because often somebody from one family moved to another location at, at one time or another, and so these two locations end up being connected by that initial movement. And, the, and so you see a lot of that in your, in your example, but uh, also across state borders. I've observed that a lot. So say in um, Hereford County, North Carolina, or Pasquotank County, North Carolina, which are in the far eastern part of the state, you will see marriages back and forth with people in Norfolk or in Suffolk, Virginia. Um, And so many of those connections started in the 1700s and people just kept going back and forth because originally there would have been people who migrated from uh, Virginia into North Carolina, 
during the colonial period, period as settlers, and then they've left relatives or friends in Virginia, and they remember that information, and so they go back looking for a husband or a wife. And so these patterns just continue on for decades and uh, in a couple of cases, centuries, at least a couple of centuries. All right. Thank you okay. very much. Now, did you also see uh, a similar pattern of free people of color, not just movement in uh, North Carolina, but also South Carolina, even all the way to Louisiana? Did you see that in your research? Oh, absolutely. There, There's a lot of, of movement of free people of color um, going in that direction from North Carolina into some of those states, but also into the Midwest. I think that's another good example of where we see kinship networks and marriage networks over uh, a large space. So places like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan are heavily settled by free people of color from North Carolina. And so you will see people over long periods of time moving from North Carolina into settlements in those states in the Midwest. So, Warren, how can your book uh, be useful to genealogists? I think my book provides genealogists with a good understanding of the context in which free people of color lived. So it's, it's one thing to have names and dates, and it's another thing to understand the laws that your ancestors had to deal with or may have had to deal with to understand how wealth differences and differences in gender affected the daily lives of free people of color. And I try to emphasize that, that being a free man of color and being a free woman of color are not the same experience. That's something that comes up in several chapters. Um, so I think that's something that we often don't think about um, as much when we're, we're just, you know, trying to get a grip on who are my ancestors, what their names are, can I find a picture of this person? Uh, I think that really fleshes it out. And it also gives people who are not necessarily clear on certain questions about their ancestors, maybe like how they got free, it provides you with at least an opportunity to think about, well, I don't have documentation, but I know that these avenues are the possible ways that my ancestor became free. Uh, do I see any patterns in their behavior um, and the patterns that I observe in this book? So I think that those, those different aspects of the book are helpful. Right, and context means so much when you're trying to connect the dots and trying to make sense out of what you're finding uh, when you are engaged in genealogical research. We have another question uh, coming from area code 562. Do you have a question or a comment? I have both a question and a comment. Okay. Okay, my name is Ron Nelson. And uh, my uh, my ancestors were free people of color from um, Hertford, North Carolina. And uh, I have the uh, the character reference letter from David Dimery, 
where he moved from Hertford, North Carolina, to the state of Tennessee. And he had uh, three brothers who also moved to Tennessee and fought in the War of 1812. And I have their documentation. Uh, the other comment is that the um, uh, the Quakers, they were against, uh, many of the Quakers were against slavery. And so in the late 1700s, they freed their slaves. And I believe it was 1790, or late 1700s. In 1791, they were called the Friends. And if you weren't, if you still had slaves, then they weren't considered as a Quaker. And my question is, did he find any uh, any information uh, as far as the Dimmeries in Hertford? So the Dimmeries, I've I've seen them in the records. I can't give you a specific example of anything that I've seen right off the top of my head, but I have seen them and I'm definitely familiar with some of the things that you're talking about as far as the movement of free people of color uh, from North Carolina into Tennessee. Uh, some people ended up moving to Tennessee as a result of the American revolution and in, in receiving land grants in Tennessee from the state of North Carolina, because Tennessee was once part of North Carolina um, and then as far as the Quakers are concerned, the Quakers definitely play an important role in the lives of free people of color, especially in certain locations such as uh, Perquimans County, North Carolina, uh, Northampton, North Carolina, uh, Guilford County. These are places where there were large populations of uh, Quakers, and as a result also uh, there was a population of free people of color some of them derive from the, the groups of enslaved people who were freed. Okay. And certainly I'm, I'm familiar with Guilford County and the, the movement from Guilford County to some free people of color to Indiana. So I, I'm, it's getting close to um, the time that the show will end. And if anyone would like to call in, the area code is 516 516- Four five three nine one four five and press one to speak to the host. Do you have any uh, closing remarks or any additional information that you would like us to know about the book, North Carolina's Free People of Color from 1715 to 1885? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, if you're interested in the book, the book is uh, available from uh, LSU Press, and so LSU Press's website is lsupress.org. Um, they're currently offering 40% off all of their books, including my books, so if you're interested, that's probably the best place to get it right now. Um, also, I'd like to just note that the story of free people of color is a very important story, especially in the case of North Carolina. North Carolina had the third largest population of free people of color in the South, and I think by um, getting a grasp of what was going on in North Carolina, we can have a better understanding of the experience of free people of color more generally and also the history of free people of color specifically in uh, this, the southern region of the country. 
Okay, well, thank you so much, Warren, for joining me. And everyone, I just want you to know your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues. I mean, review North Carolina Free People of Color from 1715 to 1885. You may find a wealth of information that will help you understand the context in which your Free People of Color family members live. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to study and learn even more. Also, please check out my book, Tracing Their Steps, a memoir, and you can find that book on uh, Amazon. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Thank you, Warren. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.